This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. So we should be on the air in a moment. Okay, so first just a couple of announcements. First, I want to remind people that in doing solutions for problem set two, please justify the correctness of your solutions. Uh, this will both help us in grading. It will also perhaps help you uncover some bugs in your problems solutions, since I've seen some proposed solutions that weren't entirely accurate. Also, if you're giving a solution algorithm, you should also analyze the runtime of the solution that you're given. Uh, finally, uh, Spencer is still working on grading problem set one, but hopes to have it done, um, I hope, by tomorrow. And so watch the website. If it gets done, I'll try and put them out outside my office so you can collect them before the new one is due. And see his comments. Okay. Okay. So today I want to wrap up talking about the network flow issues. And if you recall, last time we were talking about this sports elimination problem, where a set of teams have played part of a fixed schedule. So at the particular instant. WI is the current wins for Team I. GIJ is the number of games left between teams I and J. So these two things sort of describe both the current state and what's left to be done. And it's also useful to have these, which can be derived from the GIJs, where PI is the games left just involving Team I, and PI plus is the games left that are played against bigger numbered teams. Okay, where again, this numbering of the teams is just arbitrary. It's just used to name them. Right? And the question we were interested in was for a given team, could it at least tie for first? And we looked at the simple setting where we had a particular team 0, and we let w be w0 plus p0, so the current wins for team 0 plus the remaining games for, T0, for p0. So this was the most wins that team 0 could get. So it has, say, maybe already 10 wins. It has five games left to play. So the most wins it can get is 15. And then we were asking, can all the other games be played out in such a way such that no other team wins more than 15 games? And if we can do that, then Team Zero is still in contention at least in theory. Okay. OK, so moving over to here, this was the flow network that we looked at to actually compute this, 
where we had sort of two copies of a node for each team. We also had a source. And what was going on was that, in principle, you were trying to send this much flow into team one, and this corresponds, in this case, actually, to all the games that team one plays. And each game is either won by team one, in which case it gets sent here, or it's won by the other team that team one is playing. So that gets sent to here. So for example, if team one plays two games against team two, it can distribute those two wins either along here or along here. And what these represent is that the total wins for a given team are limited by W, this target wins we want to keep everyone under, minus W1. So in particular, um, team zero, the one we were considering, is in contention if and only if the maximum flow in this network saturates all the arcs out of S. So we managed to distribute all the wins without any team going above this magic number W. Okay. So if and only if the maximum flow is equal to or less than the summation of these PI plus values. Equals one down minus one. Okay, notice that Team N always has a PI plus value of zero, since there are no higher number teams. Okay, so with a single network flow, we can test, is team zero in contention? Okay. And in particular, this flow, if we find it, is an actual description of how to assign the remaining wins. So for example, whatever the flow is on this, that's how many wins team two gets against team one in a remaining schedule that keeps everyone at or below W. OK, everyone? Oh, yeah, no, sorry, we had to split it a bit over the two lectures. All right. Now, what the book shows is that something even stronger, which is that if, I'm sorry, sorry, the max flow should be exactly equal to this. Okay. Okay. So if we get a flow that saturates all these, we've assigned all the games. Okay? So, so what does it mean, though, if team zero is eliminated? So suppose that the flow we end up with is strictly less than this. So if it's strictly less than, okay, so if the flow is less than our critical value, 
then team zero is in fact mathematically eliminated. Can't possibly finish either first or tied for first. And it turns out that if that's true, you get a nice proof of why that is. And that's property 7.59 in the text. And what it shows is that there's a set of teams, T, such that at least one of these teams has to be above W. So in particular, what it means is that the total number of wins that have to be distributed among these teams is too many. Okay. So in particular, for these teams, what we have is that the summation of the W sub i's for i and team T, so the wins these teams already have, plus the summation of the games left where i and j are both within the set of teams t okay, is strictly greater than the number of teams in t times our target number of wins w. So what we're saying is that this is the total number of wins that have to be assigned to this many teams. And wins already plus remaining games to be played. Okay, actually I should say for this and let's say i less than j so that each game is only played once. We don't want to count the team, the game between i and j twice. So as a simple thing, suppose that t is just teams 1 and 2, and suppose w is 10, and w1 is also 10, W2 is 9, and G12 is 2. Okay, so this was the case for the example that I did at the start of this last time. So these two teams already have 19 wins. There are two more, so there's a total of 21 wins that have to be distributed between them. So 21 is greater than 2 times 10, 20. So one of them has to be above this. Okay. Right. Everyone clear? So we've said that there's some set of teams. And as you might expect, the way we get this set of teams T is from the max flow. So what happens is we create this network, we run any max flow algorithm, and then at the end we get a flow 
that um, is strictly less than this. So we can't assign all the games. Okay. And if that's the case, we look at the min cut in this graph. Okay. So we run the flow, we get a min cut AB, where as usual, A corresponds to those reachable from the source S in the residual graph, GF, where, again, the value of F is strictly less than the sum of the PA pluses. Okay, so we find a flow that's too small, we form this, and A minus S is our set of teams T. Okay, and the book gives this sort of algebraic proof that this set of teams must have um, too many games to keep them all below W. So notice that what this does. It means we get to run this to test if team zero is eliminated. And we get one of two things. We either get from the flow that's equal to this, that saturates all these arcs, an actual way of playing out the games that lets team zero at least tie for first. Or we get this set of teams T that proves you can't do that. That by this condition, it's impossible for this team to win or tie for first. Okay, so you get a nice, nice thing out of it. Okay. All right. Okay. So this sort of thing was actually known for quite a while, but somewhat more recently, actually, it was shown that. You sort of don't have to do this analysis for a given team zero. Okay. That in fact, for the setting we're talking about, you can do a more general sort of analysis. Okay. And in this more general sort of analysis going into here, it turns out that the following is always true. Okay. That um, for a set of W sub i's and gij's. Okay, so remember, W sub i and gij define sort of the current state. This is where you are in the schedule. This many wins. This defines the remaining games. Okay. So for any setting like that, there always exists a number of wins W star such that any team that can reach W star is in contention 
And similarly, if w sub i plus pi is strictly less from, than w star, then you're eliminated. Okay, so there's a so for there's a single number that's a function of the current state of the schedule. Okay such that anybody who can reach that number is still in contention. If you're below it, you're toast. Okay? You can't, can't possibly um, even tie for first. Right? Okay. So if you want to know whether teams are in contention, you just have to find this number w star. And then it's a simple matter to tell who's still in contention and who's not. Yeah. Is that an if and only if, or a single it's, implication? Or can it's a be? single one. You find W star, and if this sum is W star greater, you're still in contention. If you're less, you're not. Okay, so simple, simple thing. And to see how that works, let's go over to here. And now let's imagine that this is all the teams that we haven't eliminated a team zero. And what you can think of is this network flow is testing if everyone can be at or below W wins. Okay? So that's what this is doing. All right? Now, that was a specific W that we got from team zero. Okay. So to find W star, what we want is the smallest value of W such that you can saturate all the arcs out of here. Okay. So let me write that down here. And let me comment that the book doesn't talk about this, but I've uh, put a link on the web page to an article that does talk about these issues in more detail. Okay. So this network you can think of tests W, sees can all be equal to or less than W wins. Okay. And what you can do is suggest say that W star is the smallest W such that the max flow is the summation of the PI plus values. Okay. So notice that this doesn't change depending on what W is. Okay, so the only part of the graph that changes when you change W is this part entering T. Everything else doesn't depend on W. All right. Okay. Now, in fact, let me just use this to illustrate a couple of things of how you can find this. 
Okay. So one thing is that you can look at the W sub i's and let W max equal the maximum of the current winds. Okay. So I hope it's obvious that W star is equal to or greater than W max. Because okay. you know, if somebody already has 10 winds, then you can't have a schedule where everybody stays at 9 or below. Okay. So a simple thing you could do is to try W equals W max, find a max flow. Okay. If that succeeds, you're done. Okay. It means that that's enough. If not, you can try one higher. So why might it be attractive to do it in this way, to try W equals W max, W max plus 1, and so on until you succeed in getting a max flow of this value? Kind of inefficient, inefficient because. Okay, so you're saying it's somewhat inefficient to do this. Yeah. Well, so actually, I asked the flip question that there's a way in which it actually is fairly efficient. Does anyone see why it might be if you do it cleverly? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, please try to use yeah. So so an alternative would be to do a binary search. Okay, to you could also easily compute a maximum amount where there's also another way of doing binary search where instead of going up by one, you double until you achieve a feasible value and then you have a range to do the binary search over. Okay, so you can do that. But one reason that this might not be so bad is that I'll comment that the flow you get for W max is going to be a feasible flow for W max plus 1. Okay? Think about what's happening is if W max is, say, 10, okay? so you have this thing where all of these are 10 minus something. And then the next one is taking all of these one bigger. So the flow you finish the previous algorithm with can be used to start the new flow. Okay. So rather than starting with a flow of 0, you can continue sort of the flow computation. And I'll actually comment that there's a much more sophisticated one that lets you do that even in the binary search case. But that requires a much um, smarter kind of approach. And there are some references to how to do that in the um, paper that there's a link to. 
Yeah, I'm not holding you responsible for all this. I just want you to have the idea that often when you're solving a problem, you want to solve not just one flow computation, but a sequence of them. And it's not always necessary to do each one from scratch. Okay, everyone? Um, so let me, let me also just say one other thing, that what I've done here is to show you that if I do this, um, if I fail, it shows that it's impossible to win or tie if you get fewer than W star wins. Okay, so I go through this, I find the smallest value for which everybody can stay below it. Okay. But this actually doesn't directly say that W star is sufficient. Okay, so going back over to here, I've argued that when I compute W star, that this is true. That if your maximum number of wins is less than W star, you're eliminated. Because we tried to assign all the games and keep everybody at or below W star, and we failed. So for example, if your total is, say, 10, and W star is 11, okay, we tried to play out the remaining games and keep everybody at 10 or below and determined it was impossible. Okay? So if you can only get to 10, you're eliminated. Okay? But how about the flip side, that if you can reach 11, you're okay. okay? So going back to here, when I find a feasible schedule, if I find a schedule that saturates all these arcs, going back, can we go back to here? Operator, out, there we go. I make them work harder. It's easier when you have slides. So in this scenario, if I find it and I saturate all of these, does that necessarily show? So suppose that you know, WI plus PI is equal to W star, the one that works. Does my flow here directly show that team I is okay? okay? That is, how many wins does team I get in this? Okay, if I look at the flow into node I, is it necessarily W star? That is, if W star is 11, is there necessarily 11 wins assigned to team I in this scenario? Okay. I see some people shaking their head. And the answer is no. It's not necessarily the case in this flow that a given team I has enough wins. Okay. So this doesn't actually directly prove it. And in fact, the original paper spent several pages of high-powered mathematics to prove this result. Okay. But in fact, there's a simple proof. 
which says, okay, this is a schedule, a way of playing out the games where everybody is at 11 or below. Okay? But team I is not necessarily at 11. Okay? Well, let's change the, the results. Okay? Every time that team I plays a game, I'm going to change it from losing, any time it loses a game, I'm going to change it from losing to winning. So team I's wins go up, this number goes up, the others go down. And I keep doing that until the flow here gets to 11, okay, or W star. Okay. Now, since I have the fact that WI plus PI is equal to or greater than 11, remember I said that this is a team that could get to 11 wins by winning all the remaining games. So if I keep switching game results, I'll eventually get it up to 11. Okay. And what about the remaining teams? Okay. What's happening to their win totals? Yeah, they're going down or staying the same. So if everybody was at or below 11, and I change Team I's results until it gets to 11, everybody is still at or below 11. So while this doesn't directly find a way to let Team I tie, it's easy to shift it and get one. Okay? Right. So, it's, so in fact, this does prove the result I gave here, that if we find W star, you just look at every team and Compute this, and if you're smaller than W star, you're eliminated. If you're W star bigger, it's possible for you to at least tie for first. And in fact, this can be done in the time for one flow computation. using, as I said, techniques beyond the scope of what we've talked about, and therefore in n cubed time for n teams. Okay, so in n cubed time, you can decide for all the teams whether they're in contention or not. Okay. Now, I just want to talk about a couple of other things. Um, it's easy to extend this to a case where you can have ties. Where if you get zero for a loss, one for a tie, and two for a win. If you have a setting like that, you can actually do um, a very similar kind of thing. You can modify the flow network and these same results all apply. Um, it's possible to extend to even more complex scoring situations. For example, there are some leagues uh, where soccer is played where you get zero for a loss, one for a tie, 
and three for a wing. And there are more complicated ones where you get a variable number of points depending on how much you win by. Okay. Now, in those settings, this property is still true. Okay. So, in this setting, this is still true, but it's harder to compute. Okay, the network flow analysis does not necessarily go through. Okay. See, what's nice about this is that in this setting, the total number of points the teams get is always two. Okay, if somebody wins, you get two and zero. If there's a tie, it's one and one. But in this setting, there may be three or two points won by the two teams. Okay, so because of that, the network flow formulation breaks down, since you don't have this nice uniform thing that every game produces the same number of points. Okay. Uh, there are also extensions of this to settings where the teams are in divisions. And you can even extend this to the case where there are wild card teams beyond the division winners. And so it provides a fairly general framework. And if you're interested, the, the paper that I link to talks about more of those things. Okay. Okay. Are there any questions about this before we move on? But in part, I wanted you to, again, see that you can use network flow to solve a lot of optimization problems that seem to bear little resemblance to networks, and that we can really view it as a flexible resource allocation tool. All right. And that's part of the reason why we spend a certain amount of time on it, because it can be used to solve lots of different problems. So now, the last thing I want to talk about a little bit is um, further problems. So one important setting, which is somewhat talked about in 7.13, is a generalization of network flow to what's known as min cost flow. So in min cost flow, for an arc ij, okay, in addition to there being a capacity and a flow, there's also a cost associated with this arc, which will denote Wij, or its weight. Okay. And the cost that you incur for a given flow, okay, the cost for 
a flow F is the sum of the, sorry, Fij values times the cost of that arc and for all Ij in the graph. Okay, so for example, if I have this edge and it has Fij equals 3 and Wij equals 4, the cost is 3 times 4 or 12. So a simple way of thinking about it is suppose you thought of this arc as being a link in a network and you could rent bandwidth at a per amount of bandwidth cost. So it's say $4 a month per megabit of bandwidth, so I choose to route three megabits through this link, so the cost per month is $12. So um, min-cost flows let you solve a variety of interesting problems. Okay? One, the one that the book talks about in 7.13 is a minimum cost perfect matching. So in this setting, you have a bipartite graph with n nodes on each side, arcs connecting them in various ways, and each edge has a certain weight. And so you can think of that as being the cost. And what you want is a perfect matching, so a matching of size n of minimum total cost, where the cost of a matching is just the sum of the edge weights for the edges you choose. Okay. And there's a number of natural settings where that's something you want to do. Okay. As I said, it also comes up in this thing if you want to route things through a network at minimum cost if you're actually having to build or purchase the bandwidth. And so it has a lot of natural things. Um, it also lets you solve certain other natural routing questions. Remember I said that a natural thing is that I want to find, say, two edge disjoint paths between a source and a destination. Okay. Remember that there were a bunch of reasons why I might want to find two different paths. Well, if I want to find two edge disjoint paths, it's natural to ask for, say, the pair of paths with the fewest total arcs. 
So one of the things you might want is two edge disjoint ST paths such that the total number of arcs is minimum. Okay, so for example, in this one, there are three or sorry, three arcs on this and four arcs on this. Okay, so this solution has a total of seven arcs. Okay. Well, you can solve this problem by setting all the capacities and weights to one. Okay, so the setting the capacities to one means that you get edge disjoint paths since you can when you send flow and then you look for a flow of value two. So the minimum cost flow of value two will minimize the total number of arcs used to get these two paths. And this is a common type of thing to want to solve in network routing, in fact. And alternately, rather than minimizing the total arcs, if you want to minimize total cost, where, as I said, you have more complex cost things, then you can do that as well. Okay, so it lets you do a lot of flexible things. Okay. Now, unfortunately, uh, well, the good thing is that there are efficient min cost flow algorithms. The bad news is that they're significantly more complicated than the network flow ones and also slower. Okay. So solving min cost flow as you might expect, is both slower and more complex. So we will uh, defer this to a different course in terms of discussing in more detail. But I just want people to be aware because it is a way of extending this further to more complicated settings. Or at least people clear about what the problem is and some mm -hmm. of the things on how to use it. I'm saying, I'm sorry, we haven't talked yet, George. Uh, is it possible for you to give uh, intuition of how you go about solving it, or is it still complicated? Okay, now there, there's actually a simple intuitive way that solves it, though it's not the most efficient way. So you can find a minimum cost <laughs> flow using the augmenting path kind of methods we've talked about. And what you want to do is to find the augmenting path that has minimum cost. Okay, so if you think about it, when you find an augmenting path, you can look at the costs on that path and sum them up, and you get something like a traditional uh, shortest path problem, as we saw, say, with Dijkstra's that you would solve. And that's sort of what the book does in 7.13 for the simple case of minimum cost perfect matching. Okay? The rub is when you have back arcs, 
you get the negative of the cost because you're reducing flow. Okay, so if you think about it, when you send arc in a forward direction, you're sending more flow in the arc, so you have positive cost. When you have a back arc, you're reducing the flow, so you get negative cost. So the trick is that you now have a shortest path problem with negative edge weights, potentially. Okay? So that complicates things. And you also have to potentially worry about negative cycles. Okay? It turns out that if you always augment on the cheapest path, you never get negative cycles in the residual graph. Okay? That's something that's a non-trivial thing to prove. Can you use the mic, please? Yeah. Can you ask questions other than what is the minimum cost flow of value V? Can you ask, like, if you had something more, like here we just said the value is 2, and then you minimize those that subset of flows? Okay, so um, you can, well, for one thing, if you're using an augmenting path-based algorithm, what the minimum cost flow ones actually, the augmenting path-based one actually finds a minimum cost flow of each value. So you start with zero, that has cost zero, and you augment along the cheapest path, that gives you the cheapest flow up to however much you can augment on that path, and then the next augmentation gives you the minimum cost for the next range. So you can go until you get enough flow and stop, or alternately, you can go until you've reached your budget limit and then stop. So you can say, I want the maximum flow that has cost no more than C or as well. Yeah, you can do a variety of different trade-offs. And there are different problems where each of those might make sense. So, so there's really a lot that you can do. And it's, it's really a very powerful tool. I mean, well, network flows by themselves are very powerful, and if you add min cost flow, it becomes even more powerful. Okay. All right. Okay. I want to talk about one more generalization, and that is we talked about um, matchings in bipartite graphs or actually, I should say, maximum matchings, or perfect matchings. Okay. Uh, well, in fact, if you drop the bipartite and just talk about matchings in general graphs, okay, it's still a sensible thing to talk about, and it's still an efficiently solvable problem. So in fact, you can find a maximum matching in general graphs, though the algorithms are more complicated and slower. Okay, so you can do this in order n cubed, and also for a min cost maximum matching. So you can deal with general graphs, weights on the edges, and still find a maximum matching of minimum cost. Okay, the techniques get progressively more complicated, 
but I just want to give people a feeling for the tools that are available if you want to solve um, a range of graph problems. Okay, so this is all I plan to talk about for um, graph algorithms for now. So I don't know if people had any questions on this general topic before we move on. Okay, so what I want to do now is to move on to Chapter 8, which deals with hard problems. And let me comment that this creates a little bit of a complication for teaching it, since I suspect that um, almost everyone in this class has at least a somewhat different background in terms of what you've seen about this topic. So I will say that I am assuming that everyone has some familiarity with it, and what I want to do is to try and review a little bit, but also to touch on some points that maybe didn't get stressed in the same way that I will in this class. And so I suspect that almost everyone will see some things you've seen before. I hope everyone will also see some things you haven't. So, so general setting that we're trying to deal with is the following. You start with a problem x. So again, this is generally speaking, chapter 8, though my coverage will be a little bit different than the books in any cases. Okay, so you have a problem X that you want to solve. So this might be, for example, shortest path from A to B or how close are strings S1 and S2. Um, is team I eliminated? And so a variety of different ones that you might want to solve. Okay. So when you're presented with this problem X, ideally the scheme we'd like to have is this, where given that you're presented with problem X, you'd like to either find a good algorithm to solve it, a good solution algorithm, or show that no good algorithm exists. Okay. In the first case, great, you found what you'd really like to have. In the second case, you've at least provided convincing evidence that uh, there's a limit to what you can expect to do with the problem. And broadly speaking, we can view this as characterizing problem X as either easy 
or hard. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so this is kind of our strategy. Yeah, George? Okay, so that's a good question. So to begin with, to have this be a sensible thing, we have to notion, have a notion of what is a good solution algorithm. Okay, so I'll ask you, okay, what is? What do we want from a good solution algorithm? Okay, so I heard polynomial time and space. So that's certainly something that we've come to take as a reasonable standard. Okay, do you have anything else you want to say? Or nothing, anything more? Yeah, no. the same thing. Okay. So, but let me let me state this a little bit more precisely. Okay, and actually, let me state it first in a slightly more general way. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so it would be nice also. So, so let's say, let me put that at more thing. We say a good solution solves every input, maybe restricted to inputs that are correct or make sense in some ways in terms of format, maybe perhaps valid input. Um, quickly and correctly. And let me just comment that this is ignoring the space issue since typically we'll assume that using space takes time proportional to the amount of space used. So at least in most settings, if it runs quickly, it won't use too much space. Now, of course, I've quickly as a sort of vague term, and as Chris mentioned, maybe polynomial time is a way of making quickly more precise. So, all right. So, but this says some things. It says we want to be able to solve all valid inputs. Okay, we want to solve them correctly. Okay. And maybe actually, let me say, correctly to be more precisely exactly. Okay. Because, for example, if we want the shortest path that we're saying, we want what is actually the very best path, not one that's reasonably close. Okay. Uh, how close are the two strings? We want an exact measure of there distance, okay, the best way that they can be, say, aligned. Okay. All right. okay. Okay, so everyone reasonably happy with this definition? Okay. So then we're left with, okay, well, if we've decided quickly as polynomial time, what do we mean precisely by this? Okay. So we can say that for polynomial time, we mean that there exists a constant k such that 
for all inputs i if the size of input i is equal to n. We can solve it in order n to the k time. Okay, so we're saying that how long we take to solve a problem depends on how big it is, okay, and that there's some fixed constant k, so we can solve it in time that's a polynomial function of the input size. Okay. So even this leaves a certain amount of imprecision, and in particular the size of an input. Okay. Let me say that the technical definition is usually the number of bits it takes to write it down. Okay. Even that assumes a particular encoding mechanism for the input, and often we'll choose simpler sizes. For example, if we're dealing with strings, we'll deal, think of the number of characters in the string rather than worrying about the number of bits we need to encode an individual character. And similarly, for a graph, we'll typically talk about the number of vertices and edges rather than the number of bits it takes us to write down the edge weight. For, at least for the purposes of being in polynomial time, usually that's okay. Okay, so again, presumably all of you have seen this general thing. I just wanted to sort of give you the context a little bit more and bring everyone up to speed. Okay, so now... One of the things to ask is, is polynomial time a good class for what we wanted, which was sort of fast? Okay, so we gave a definition that if it's order n to the k for some constant k, we said it's in polynomial time. Okay. So is, would you want to defend that this is a good definition for fast? Okay, so you're talking about actually not fast, but faster. Okay, that an exponential algorithm may, for many inputs, run faster than a polynomial time algorithm. Okay, right? Yeah. So that, that's certainly an issue. And the fact that big O ignores the constant factors um, can cause that to be a problem. Okay. But I'm asking actually an even simpler and more basic question. Just for this class, 
are you happy that things that are in this class are fast? Not compared to other things, but just compared to what you'd like to achieve. That is, if something fits this, would you always be willing to say it's a good solution? And the answer is no, yeah, that's right. That, say, certainly if k is, say, 100, okay, the size of a problem you can solve in a reasonable length of time is very small. Okay? In fact, even 2 to the 100th is a pretty big number. Okay? So in fact, this is not a good class for FAST in many ways. In fact, uh, you can make a convincing case that it's really too big, that it includes many running times or algorithms that would be considered to be ridiculously slow. Okay. I'm just curious, how many of you had this discussed in your previous um, study of this area? So few of you, at least one of you had it from me, so <laughs> not a good data point. <laughs> okay, so this is an important thing. But the real important thing is that we actually don't care about this to a large <laughs> extent for two reasons. One is practical, okay, that in practice if x is solvable in polynomial time, and let me now remind you that the class P is those problems that have this sort of solution, then usually actually does have a good algorithm. In fact, what's happened historically is that problems which previously had no polynomial time algorithm sometimes had initial solutions, that is the first polynomial time solution found, was not too good. But that was almost always followed by improvements that resulted in reasonable running times for the algorithm. So in fact, in practice, K is equal to or less than 3 almost always. And there are very, very few problems that are not sort of synthetically manufactured just to create high exponents that do not fit into this. Okay. But in fact, the second reason that we don't really care that it's too big is that the reason for defining this class is not actually to define easy problems, but to define hard ones. Okay. So if this is our class P, and if I can show that X is outside P, okay, so if X is not in P, then that's pretty good evidence that it's hard. So remember that the way we demonstrate a problem is easy 
is by showing an actual good algorithm. And we can actually look at the algorithm and say, is it good or not? Okay. But to show it's hard, if we can say it's not in P, and P includes not only algorithms that are fast in practice, but even lots of algorithms that are dreadfully slow. And we're saying if X isn't in P, even those dreadfully slow algorithms, you know, the end of the hundredth algorithms, won't solve X. Okay, so it's very strong evidence that X is hard, at least in our technical sense. Okay, is everyone? Okay. Let me also just comment that other things that are good about P okay, is that the class P is not very model dependent. That is, it doesn't matter much exactly how you're charging for different operations. In fact, the class P even applies to parallel machines as long as the parallel machines has only a polynomial number of processors. And so it's saying that even if you have a machine with a pretty large number of processors, if something's not in P for a single processor, it's not in P for the parallel machine. Okay. The only way in which this is not true, I don't know if anyone knows, there is actually one known type of model where um, the class P sort of has a different behavior for it than for other models. Sorry? Yeah, quantum machines. Quantum machines of polynomial size can actually do an exponential number of operations. So it does break down for those. But since we can't yet come very close to building quantum machines, at least P is good for all models we can currently actually realize. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So. So really, mostly, as I said, we want this class P for defining things that are outside it, for defining things that are hard. And as I said, in practice, if you can find a polynomial time algorithm, you're doing OK. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is um, what's in 8.1 of the text. So 8.1 talks about reductions, which I suspect most of you have seen. So let me not go too much into it. But the idea of reductions is to compare the relative difficulty of two problems. Okay. So what we'd like to do is to be able to say things like, problem x, say this problem we were considering, is at least as hard as problem y. And the way we talk about this is by writing 
this, where we have y with an equal to or less than symbol with a subscript of p, standing for polynomial time, and here we have x. So this is written as y is polynomial time reducible to x. But what it means in a fairly precise way is that x is at least as hard as y up to polynomial timeness. Or more explicitly, what this implies is that if y is not in p, if y is hard because it's outside of p, then x is also not in p. So again, the typical way of showing a problem is hard is by starting with a known hard problem y show y is polynomial time reducible to x and conclude that x is hard. There's also an equivalent flip side, which is that if you show this, you can also conclude that if x somehow were solvable in polynomial time, then so is y. And so this means that y being hard implies x is hard, and x being easy implies that y is easy. So in one sense, you're not going to go too far wrong to just view this as an equal to or less than in terms of problem complexity. Okay? X is at least as high on the complexity scale as y. Y is at least as low on the complexity scale as x. Right? Okay, again, presume that's reasonably simple. Okay. Now, the issue then, of course, is how do you show this? And the answer is, is typically in a constructive way. So, to show that y is polynomial time reducible to x, what we're going to do is to show that you can use x to solve y. And I like to indicate this in the following sort of pictorial way. That I want, my goal with this is to solve y. So what I want to do is to build a y solver. Okay. So a program or black box that solves y. Okay. And well, what does a y solver do? It takes as input i, which is an input for y, 
And what comes out of here is the answer for input y. And this is certainly a sort of very high level approach, right? That, but if a program does this, then it solves y. And what we're going to do in here is first transform i to a different input i prime, which is suitable for x. And then we're going to feed this into an x solver. And I want to emphasize that this x solver is viewed to be also a black box. The only thing we know about it is that it correctly solves problem x. So just as before, what comes out is the answer for i prime. And then what we do is to do another transformation. This is typically the one that maybe has more work. And convert i prime to this desired answer for y. And what I want to emphasize is that this is a black box, but these two parts are not. These are real programs that you have to describe and things that should run in polynomial time. Okay, so this and this are polynomial time. Um, say, programs or algorithms. Okay. So let's think about what this is saying. It's saying that if you have a program that solves x, then using that program plus polynomial other work will solve y. Okay. And remember that at least one of the direct things I said was that this implies that if x is in p, then y is in p. So this is, in essence, a constructive proof of that. If I could replace this black box by a real efficient program, one that runs in polynomial time, then everything in here runs in polynomial time, and it solves y. Okay, so this is all kind of abstract. So let me give you probably today just one or two very simple examples. And let me comment that the book, um, in keeping with the tradition, has reductions of this sort that are almost exclusively too complicated to be useful teaching tools. Okay. Now, there are fairly simple transformations. And what I'd like to do is to give you two of them here. 
we'll talk maybe about one or two more, somewhat less. Okay, so the simplest one, let me start with two easy problems and show them. So the selection problem is the following. It takes as input x1, x2, up through xn, which is an unsorted list, and an integer k in the range 1 through n. And the output is the kth smallest number in the list. So for example, if k is 1, you're supposed to return the smallest number in your list. If k is n, the largest. If k is n over 2, um, the median. Okay. That's a simple problem. Okay. And in fact, it can be solved in linear time. But what I want to just say is that selection is polynomial time reducible to sorting. So the transformation from i to i prime is very simple. All you have to do here is remove the parameter k, since the sorting input is just a list, not a integer k alongside. Okay. You feed this into a sorting routine, and what comes out is a sorted array A. Okay, so this is your sort routine. It's a black box. We don't know how it sorts, but it takes in the unsorted list and gives us a sorted array. And then we simply return A of K, the Kth element of this sorted array. So in particular, what this tells us is that however fast we can sort, we can solve selection. Okay. So in particular, if I had some super fast sorting method that could sort somehow in square root of n time, then I can solve selection in square root of n time. That's the basic idea here. Now here it's kind of trivial because both problems are easy. Okay. But let's go to two problems that are not so easy, though they're not so hard. So let me look at set partition. Set partition is the following. Again, the input is x1 through xn, which I'll call s. And the output that I want is two sets, S1 and S2, such that each SI in one, exactly one, of the sets S sub i. So everything goes in either S1 or S2. And the summation of the XIs xi and s1 
should be equal to the summation of the xi's i in S2. And there's sort of two versions of this problem, one in which you actually find the sets, the other where it's just a yes-no problem. So let me consider for simplicity just the yes-no version. So if you can do this, then you say yes. If there's no such partition, then you say no. So we want to, can we take a, a set of numbers and divide it up into two equal size ones? Okay. So a claim that set partition is polynomial time reducible to subset sum. So what I'm going to claim is the following. So I remember to do this, I want to create a set partition solver. Okay. And so what I'll do in here is say that, so there's actually, I'll sort of, let me slightly cheat and say that I'm going to have a pre-processing phase where I'm only going to consider it to be a valid instance if the summation of the xi's is even. And if the sum of the numbers isn't even, then you can't ever divide it into two equal size sets. Okay. So what I'm going to do is simply let the input to subset sum be S and the summation of the xi's over 2. Okay, so uh, this is my set of numbers. This is my target sum. And I put this into a subset sum solver. And if this says yes, then that means I found a subset of these elements that sums to half. So the remaining elements also sum to half. And I've got a partition. And if the result of this is no, then there can be no way of partitioning into two equal size sets, since if there were, each of those would be a solution to the subset sum problem. So if I have an efficient routine for subset sum, I can use that to solve this. Okay. In a slightly more sophisticated way, I could adapt this to solve not just the yes-no version, but to actually find the answer. That would take a bit more work. So, Okay, we'll break for now. We'll talk uh, more on um, easy and hard problems next time, next week. Okay. I'll also the preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.